Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. In the fall of 2013, I was walking to a 7-Eleven down by the University of Oregon campus, and I was getting coffee with a guy named Jeff, and I was nervous, like all get out. Jeff's a lot taller than me, good head uh, above above me and I'd gotten to know him and his wife Debbie over the last year uh, at that time um, because of their daughter. I had gone down to visit her. She was a student uh, at the time uh, with me at Northwest Christian and her parents lived in Southern California so I'd gotten to know them for a while but I was still really nervous to ask Jeff, hey can I have permission to marry your daughter? And um, I was I was pretty happy because uh, he said Yes, you know, and I, I had hope that he would say yes. Um, I wasn't going in blind for sure. Um, but with his and Debbie's per- permission to, uh, to ask Janelle to marry me, I, I did on October 30th. So we're, we're celebrating uh, seven years together as, as, a, as a couple um, this last October, which was really fun. Um, but that was really the only the beginning, right, of our relationship of, with my wife. Um, we were college students, both seniors that year, and she was going off to a mission trip, and I was going to go take a job in San Diego. And we were madly in love and trying to plan, you know, already how many children we were going to have and where we wanted to live long term and all these things. We wanted to plan. The plans had to come together for our wedding first, before that. So we, we got with Janelle's mom, and she let us know, I think March 7th, 2015 is the right date. That's probably the earliest we can get everything together with all your travel plans and all these things that are going on. And so if you're doing the math in your head, that's 15 months from October 2013 to March of 2015. We were actually engaged longer than we had dated for. And... Um, so, you know, we're really excited, we're giddy, we're just anxious to get rid of this physical distance that has to happen, because it's, you know, it has to be appropriate. I, if I'm in San Diego and she's an hour away, we come and visit each other, but then at night we have to say our goodbyes. And for us, we're techies, so we have our cell phones, and yeah, we can text and everything like that, and we can fall asleep texting each other, but that's just not, this is not what we were getting into this for. We had hope that those kinds of nights would be over soon. And our wedding day finally did come, and in reality, it was only the beginning its own self of this journey that we've been on now for over uh, five years, being married. Um, As Janelle walked down the aisle, I mean, as I think of back to that time, now I was less intimidated by Jeff, um, but as he was walking down with Janelle and our friends and family in the audience, she's so beautiful and she was really stunning that day. All of those thoughts about that waiting and the frustration and the annoyance of those 15 months just disappeared. I I can't even tell you what I felt during those 15 months because it's been erased by the feelings of love and and marriage now since then. And so in the Bible, there's several images that are used to describe our relationship with God. And one of them is of bride and groom, this wedding analogy. In the Old Testament, uh, in the prophets, there's, they speak of God as a faithful husband and a groom to God's people, Israel. And then in the New Testament, Jesus, in, in a, a passage in John 14, uses a familiar Jewish proposal. So if you think about it, if I was a good Jew and I had gone to Jeff, I would have said something like this. Jeff, in my father's house 
I'm going to add on many rooms to it. And so there's plenty of room for your daughter Janelle to be there. And so then I would go to Janelle and I'd say, Janelle, in my father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you. I'm, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then when I come back, I will take you to be where I am. And Jesus says this about us, about the church, about his disciples. He says, I'm going to go away and prepare a place. And then I will come back and take you to be where I am. And then um, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, um, there's this great idea of the church as the bride of Christ. It's very vivid in chapter 21. There's kind of almost a wedding scene and the church is prepared as a bride to meet her groom. And so this language is used to communicate the great love that God has for us. The love of a faithful husband for his pure bride. And, you know, it feels like in 2020, it's like we're waiting for our wedding, right? It's like we're, we're saying we're, we're just waiting with great expectation for how things are going to play out. And it feels like we're waiting on all sides of our, of our um, life. We're waiting to, to know if we can go out to eat again. We're waiting to know what's going to happen with the coronavirus, with the vaccines, with the elections results, with the economic stimulus with our holiday plans, are we going to be able to celebrate Christmas with more than just our immediate household or, or not? There's all kinds of things that we're waiting and waiting for. We don't know exactly when Advent started, but um, it, there seems to be some indications that Christians were practicing it as early as 400 AD. So for over a thousand years now, 1500 plus years, Christians have been celebrating this season leading up to Christmas. And, and it's a preparation time about reflecting and, and waiting, um, reflecting on the waiting that the, the people have done for the Messiah, the, the Christ child to be born. But they're also waiting right away. Christians practiced a waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Uh, I love this quote um, from J. Kim. He says, Advent reminds us that Christian hope is shaped both by what has happened and what is going to happen. And so we don't just remember uh, a night 2,000 years ago when a little baby was born at Christmas, but we also await the King Jesus who is going to return and as our groom welcome us back to, to his home in heaven, our home as well. And um, so today, while we're thinking about Christmas, we're singing Christmas songs and all of this joyous celebration as we expect and celebrate the baby Jesus, I want today to focus a little bit on that other part, that second meaning of Advent, about what's going to happen, how this is a season where we wait with great hope, not just for a baby to be born, but for a king to return, uh, a groom to welcome us as his bride back. Um, and so we're, we're looking at First Peter because uh, it's a church, uh, or it's a set of churches um, that receive a letter from the Apostle Peter, and they receive it because they're waiting, and they're a church that I think is going to be a great model. His, his instructions to them and their circumstances in their life can teach us a lot about how we should live in this waiting time, if you will. So let's read First Peter um, chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 16. So it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, 
to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that uh, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And I, I don't know about you, but I just like read that verse right there at the end and I go, huh, I don't think I've got this all figured out yet. So anyway, well, we might come back to that verse. We might not because I'm not sure I get it. But um, verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Another Leviticus passage there, um, as you shared earlier. Uh, so there's some clues in the letter here um, that are going to let us in on why it's written. So if you're looking at the text here, there's uh, ways to just kind of say, okay, why might this letter have been written? What's the occasion? Because just as we looked at, at Philippians uh, in the last three weeks, the letters weren't just something that somebody sat down and said, you know, I think in a couple thousand years, people are going to struggle with waiting. So let me just write this. No, there's actual people behind these letters. There's actual people Peter had in mind in these different churches. Some he had met, some he had only heard about. It may have been that they had written letters to Peter or to the church in Rome. And then this letter then is written in response to the questions and the concerns that they have. And so... Uh, we get some of those clues in this first uh, part as we uh, hear that they are exiles and scattered. Um, and I, I think there's both kind of a dual purpose here um, to understanding that it's both a spiritual and a physical um, way of being out of place. So if you think about um, people who are not American citizens, uh, it's it's kind of being out of place, but my brother lives in Shanghai, China, and it's very much like being out of place when you live in another country. Um, you don't speak the language. You don't, um, 
know the food or the customs. I remember traveling in Thailand and we were told when we went there that when you're sitting on the train, on the subway, you should be careful about crossing your legs because pointing with any part of your body, it can be offensive, like if I flipped you off with my middle finger. So I was thinking, wow, there's customs just simply about where my body is pointing with my foot or with my hand that can be offensive in different places. And it makes me feel out of place because I don't understand what it's like. So being alien or being um, even marginalized, uh, for these people, uh, Peter is writing to them, Christians who were likely uh, Gentile converts to a way of life that was foreign to them and foreign to their neighbors. And so they might have been uh, citizens of Rome and they might have been living in the town they grew up in, but they were now like exiles, like people who were marginalized, but like people who didn't understand the customs. More likely they were persecuted for that. They were not eating the same foods or they were not buying from the same markets or they weren't bowing down at the same time as these people who were there. Their priorities had shifted. They were now a peculiar people in their very hometown. And this language of exile and scatteredness is actually a a thing that the Jewish people were very familiar with. They had been taken from their homes in Jerusalem and Judea and all over that kind of area and taken to a place called Babylon and then from there to other places. And they, they kind of got scattered and dispersed. And so Peter uses this language, this dispersed language, scattered and exiles. And he says, I know what it's like to be that way. And I want to write to you because in this language um, of kind of being out of place, it seems to be that they are weary and tired and exhausted. And it seems to me that if uh, I reflect on 2020 and being weary and exhausted and the waiting and the out of place nature of having to just wear masks all the time or um, not being able to have uh, the same comforts that I usually do by going out to eat once or twice a week or something. Um, and so we, we can feel and identify just like these churches that are receiving this letter with the being out of place, with the weariness of what it means to be scattered and marginalized. And so with the same breath, though, Peter uh, begins to point out to them that they are chosen by God. They're, they're chosen and they belong to Christ through the work of the Spirit in their lives. So he greets them with grace and peace in plenty, abundance. And I, I believe um, the Christians that, that Peter was writing to, uh, there's good evidence that they were experiencing pressure, not just from their friends and neighbors, but the governing authorities as well were harassing them because of their faith in Christ. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel harassed with some of these regulations, right? Sometimes I also feel like I'm not sure I understand what I'm supposed to do in response to it. What does my faith in Christ uh, mean when I'm feeling harassed? Um, I also think that sometimes uh, we as Christians um, give up too quickly, that even uh, with some things that we might say are harassments, they might be good things for us. And that's what Peter actually then spends the rest of the letter doing. He talks about sufferings. Um, in verse, uh, verse four, uh, or sorry, verse, uh, verse six here, in these things, you greatly rejoice, even though you've had to suffer 
grief and all kinds of trials. And so Peter says, don't pray that these harassments go away. Don't pray that you get over these uh, barriers or obstacles. In fact, he says uh, that you rejoice greatly in those, that he praises God because of that, that he has hope even in these moments of harassment. And so for me, I, I do pray that the pandemic ceases. I do pray that we get clarity on what it means. And I, I do pray that the church as a whole doesn't continue to come under scrutiny and harassment for meeting. But at the same point, I also feel like I need to wait with hope, with joy, even in these things. So I don't pray that they go away. I pray that I might in this season of waiting in this scattered nature and this weariness that I might live with a sense of hope. So um, in many ways, the whole work of the Christian life is Advent work, is waiting for the second coming of Christ. It's living with hope. And um, there's a verse here in verse three, praise be to God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope. And one translation puts it as a great expectation that it's not just um, that we've been born into this new life and so uh, we now have Jesus, but we actually wait for Jesus. We've, we both have a, uh, a now and a later life with Christ. And so um, as you think about your baptism, um, maybe you kind of say, yes, I committed my life to Christ then at my baptism. For me, that was 2001. So for 19 years, I've been living a relationship with Christ. But there's also an element here that Peter says, when you were birthed, you had a new birth, you were birthed into something that's waiting, that's a great expectation for what's to come in the life ahead. And so um, I think about the expectations that I have every day. And I wonder uh, for you, like, what are you putting your greatest expectation in? What are you waiting for with hope? It may be that we are sometimes putting our hope and our waiting in the wrong things, that we're expecting um, an economic stimulus to make us uh, safe and secure. Or um, we're waiting for, um, for me, I'm waiting for a child to be born. I'm really excited about that in February, that our second daughter will be born. And so there are things that I think about preparing her room, preparing uh, for uh, the life, uh, you know, that we're going to have to live. When my wife goes on maternity leave, I've got to provide financially more because she's not going to be making money. There are things that I'm waiting for uh, with great expectation. And yet, I wonder if I could honestly say my greatest expectation is the Lord Jesus Christ's return. Um, you know, I think Peter doesn't ignore these real struggles that we face when we're there, our, our needs, our, um, the things to provide for us. Um, I, I like this quote from uh, a friend, he, he, uh, or from a commentator that I was reading. He talks a little bit about how so many uh, grandparents he knows often speak with frustration over the lack of religion among their grandchildren. They ask, and I ask often, why isn't Christianity more effective? And he points out, yeah, life is tough. And our tendency uh, when the list of obligations and important matters come up is for God in our culture is God kind of takes a back seat. Our life with Christ tends to slide away when things about money and health and, um, you know, these things, these things take priority. 
Um, and I think trials, it seems, for Peter is a great opportunity for Christians and churches to place the challenge of the gospel before the world. Um, so here's what the commentators say. Jesus turned the measures of success, power, strength, and joy upside down. And when we're facing troubles and when we're waiting, and the church now has been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. Right? It, this is not something like we think it's going to happen tomorrow, and yet we do have to live with the sense that it is going to maybe happen tomorrow. And so we write, uh, there are letters in the Bible that seem to say nobody in the, the recipients of the letter aren't going to die before Jesus comes back. That's the kind of way that the imminent return of Jesus has to be on our mind. And yet we also have to wrestle with the fact that we're going through trials and we're waiting. And we've been waiting for 2,000 years. And like our pandemic, it seems like we were told it was going to be three weeks of shutdown three months of shutdown. We don't know when it's going to be. Well, we'll be back in normalcy in 2021. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm skeptical at this point about how long this pandemic is going to last. But my greatest expectation cannot be the end of the pandemic. It has to be in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when we're going to hear the words, come my bride, come to this home that I've prepared for you. So uh, as we um, close, I'll just look a little bit more at the, the end of this uh, section that we read. Um, Peter references some prophets and some themes from the Old Testament in, in this letter. He even says, right, like I pointed out, that angels long to look into these things regarding Christ's coming, the salvation that Jesus brought. And so I think it's really important here um, that before uh, Peter invites us to live holy lives, verse 13 um, I'm following there. Um, he, uh, he actually gives us kind of some practical things. Um, so he, he says, okay, I really want you to be holy, but here's some practicality about kind of like waiting for Jesus second coming for dummies. You know, you've seen those wait, you know, those books like I iPhone for dummies or something. Um, so I kind of feel like, uh, this would this would be Peter's kind of that that uh, that kind of a book here in uh, in verse thirteen right before he he says okay be holy as God is holy because that's something we do in church a lot we say well you should be holy we we have a God who's holy we have a salvation we've been saved by Jesus and and this inheritance that we're waiting for is in heaven and it's prepared for us so in light of that we've got to be holy and I would say. That's really, really good. But what does it mean to be holy? Right? If I walk out of here today and I had just said, be holy, I'm not sure we would live any differently. Right? We, we don't know what holiness often means. And so I think that's what Peter is writing here. He's saying, don't get weary. Don't get tired. Don't, don't let the holiness that God is calling you to slide away just because uh, you're having to wait a little longer than you thought you would. Um, a, a writer, Scott McKnight, describes our world as having an overwhelming array of options. It's like someone sitting at a restaurant and becomes overwhelmed by the number of options on the menu. And they know that no chef in the world can truly do everything well. So finally, in frustration, he just blurts out to the waiter, what does the chef make best? Right. And McKnight says, we need to announce the goodness of God in Christ to those who are befuddled by the menu of options in our world. That's what holiness 
is. In a world that has too many options, it's very pluralistic, it has so many things that it's trying to say, this is what your hope should be in, this is what makes a meaningful life, this is how you should live. Holiness points to saying God's goodness is on display in how I live. And so the invitation, I think, in First Peter is to wake up. And Advent is a season of waking up. Every day should be a chance to roll out of bed and wake up to the idea that God's presence is here. And this is what the prophets were so pumped about. They were saying that God is going to bring about God's salvation for God's people. It's incredible news, something that we should be sharing all the time. And so what Advent does for us is remind us that every year we have this salvation, this news to share with the world. It's a time to wake up again to the reality that this news needs to be on display. Um, that the broken things and the things that are not okay will be made right one day when Jesus returns. And we need to keep that message in, the, in front and center, I think. Um, it's not just about uh, comfortable living and things that are easy. The prophets actually didn't even understand what they were pointing towards fully. Um, and I think you could say that sufferings and trials are kind of like fog banks. It's pretty clear today, but it's been pretty foggy this last week. Um, and uh, right now, you, you, you kind of feel like sometimes when you're driving and you've got that fog bank, it, you can't see the turn ahead of you, right? You just have to go by faith, following those white dots on the uh, and yellow lines on the road. Maybe going by feel a little bit if you're familiar with the road. You know, I got a couple more turns ahead before it straightens out. And right now, I think we may not be able to see the turn ahead of us. The destination and how many curves ultimately lead to what uh, the prophets are pointing to. And so we need, just like these prophets of old, truth tellers, people who are reminding us not to get caught up in the values of our culture and the things that we tend to put our hope in, not to get sucked into the distractions, if you will, um, but wait with this living hope, this greatest expectation for Christ's return. And so every day um, is, a, is a day to wake up. Uh, we talked a little bit about in communion, every time we share communion, we talk about the night on Jesus's, that Jesus was betrayed. Peter was there uh, on that night. And after that meal, they went out to sing a hymn. Or they had sang a hymn and they went out uh, to the Mount of Olives. I'm sorry, I got the order wrong. And they were going to pray. And Peter and James and John, three of Jesus' closest friends, go with Jesus further into this kind of garden area. And Jesus begins to pray. And Peter falls asleep. And Jesus comes back to Peter and finds him. And Jesus is visibly exhausted and emotionally devastated. He's actually, in one of the gospel writers, says that he's sweating drops of blood. And that guy wakes Peter up. Why are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we're told that Jesus returns two more times to find Peter, James, and John sleeping. And there's days that I read a passage of scripture and I'm convicted. I hear Jesus telling me to watch and pray, right? I come to church sometimes and I feel like, oh, I got I to gotta get my life together. 
And I, I love Christmas time, and um, I especially, as I mentioned, feel God speaking through Advent, right? But there's there's definitely um, so much uncertainty right now, and that often pulls at my attention. My spirit, I feel like, is willing. I don't want to fall into temptation just to put my hope in other things. But I desire to be holy as God is holy. But I, I'm not sure that my faith is going to f- survive this fire sometimes. There are some days where I just don't know that I have my hope put where it should be. I want people to stop and take notice about the living hope that's in me. I want to, as Peter will encourage the church in just a little bit more in his book, to always have a reason for the hope that's within you. I want to proclaim boldly this salvation that awaits us, this inheritance that even angelic beings want to know a little bit more about. But my flesh is weak. I fall asleep. And so every morning as I wake up, it's a time to set my attention again. To say every day is a chance to reorient on the hope of Christ's return. Not on the stock market, not on the vaccine, not on the government stimulus, not on my friends or neighbors. Um, because I'm a foreigner here. I'm, I'm an exile here. This isn't my home. So uh, Peter gives uh, three, let's see, make sure I have this right. I think th- there's four things here in this passage. Um, and this is how we'll close. Um, so he says, have an alert mind. And I think about that driving analogy. When you're behind the wheel, if you're sleepy, you probably all have ways to keep yourself awake when you're driving. Maybe you have to drive up to Corvallis or something like that. Well, that's not that far for you. But um, but I remember going and I had a girlfriend in Corvallis. And so 45 minutes um, on the, I would take the uh, 99 uh, instead of taking the 5 because the 5 was so straight, I'd fall asleep, right? And um, there's all sorts of ways to stay awake. I, I think of Peter's invitation here is don't be asleep at the wheel of your life, right? Um, have a mind that's fully sober. So we know things like alcohol and drugs affect your rational, um, like the reasoning of your mind. But what else distorts your mind? Maybe it's you're dreaming about TV shows you're watching or the news that you're reading. Perhaps you just need to kind of think about the substances in your life. Maybe it's not just alcohol, um, but maybe it's food or pornography or gambling, these different things that kind of make us not sober anymore. We're no longer able to rely on our rational mind. Um, And then he says, set your hope on a salvation to come when Jesus returns. So when I was engaged and waiting for our wedding day, I I talked to Janelle about our life and, and what our plans were incessantly. And, and I've heard it said that you can tell what someone's idol is or better yet, their, what their God is in five minutes. Some people say 30 seconds. So in my engagement time, you knew I was going to be, in, that I was engaged because that's all I talked about. I'm engaged, I'm engaged, I'm engaged, I'm engaged, right? So what if our hope, our greatest expectation in life was what we talked about the most, right? What if in the first five minutes of meeting you, I knew that you were waiting with great hope for Jesus's return. Um, and then he says, be holy. So, um, and he kind of uses this, uh, this term as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires 
that you had when you lived in ignorance. So he's saying, don't be a, be a nonconformist. Don't conform to what is going on around you. Um, now, I think it's important that we wear masks, that we conform to the, the guidelines, right? I'm, I'm not a nonconformist when it comes to civic laws and those kind of things. I think those are important. But I, I think there are some things that we probably do need to be nonconformist in our, our life, a, a contrast society, if you will, to what is going on around us. And so um, he says, you used to have these desires, these, these things you used to do. And he says, now as children, uh, you're going to live a little bit differently. And so um, I don't want us to say we have to become like Amish or something where we don't have electricity. But I think we should be a little Amish, something peculiar, something contrasted. So what is that for you? Um, I don't know. Uh, he then ends with this statement, therefore... Um, and, and I, or in verse 13, he says, therefore, and then um, in verse uh, 15, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so um, one of the best ways we can witness uh, to this world around us is by living differently, living holy. And so I wonder what would it be like for you to wake up and live with this great expectation and with that, I'd, I'd like to pray for us, and then we'll um, sing, our, sing our hymn. Um, God, we thank you for the chance to wake up. Um, we thank you for uh, coming into our life um, over and over again, not just uh, discarding us when we fall asleep or fall into temptation. Uh, God, thank you for Advent and uh, the time of preparation. We thank you for the coming of your son Jesus uh, as a baby, being born. And as we um, think now also about the, the fact that Advent reminds us about what's going to happen, uh, your return to welcome us home, uh, we pray that you help us live well as strangers, as scattered people here um, while we wait. Uh, we thank you for Jesus most of all who gives us this great hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if there's a response to the message, but... Um, but as I was thinking about the, uh, the benediction today, I was reminded of St. Francis's prayer. And so I just thought I would share that with you as a, as a benediction for us to wake up and be people of peace. So, uh, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled, as to console, to be understood, as to understand, to be loved, as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. So may we be people that bring peace as we wake up in this season. Thanks Amen. for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.